Radio Waves Radio Waves Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. Today is Thursday 10th of November 2016. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and this week's episode is, yes, Virginia, the universe is still expanding, and the acceleration of that expansion continues with Dr. Brad Tucker, Mount Stromlo Research Fellow, PhD Supervisor, and Type 1A Supernovae Researcher. Each session, we'll have co-presenters, we'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy or optical astronomy. We'll have a news roundup, a history and theory session from Nadezhda. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Nadezhda. Hello, Brennan. Privyat. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Well, what have you got for us this week, Nadezhda? Well, last week we introduced the discovery of the cosmic microwave background by Panzias and Wilson in 1965. And because we like big numbers and acronyms, we will be calling the cosmic microwave background the CMB. In summary... The Big Bang is an established model or theory. In the everyday world, a theory is a guess. But in science, a theory is a well-established explanation of a broad collection of observations, usually supported by very strong mathematics. For example, quantum theory is very well established along with evolution, plate tectonics and Einstein's theory of general and special relativity. Along with the Big Bang, these are the big theories in science and may well be slightly modified in the future, but it is highly unlikely that any of them will be overturned now. Our observations of the universe tell us that the temperatures and pressures for the first 30,000 years of our universe were so high that individual atoms could not exist. Matter existed as a highly ionized plasma, and the photons in this early universe were temporarily trapped in an opaque fog, which even today, which with our most powerful instruments is still impenetrable. So, our universe continued to expand. And by the way, Brendan, I am very interested to hear your interview with young Dr. Tucker about the accelerating universe. Yes, it's a good one, Nadezhda. He explains it very clearly. All right, sure. Now, back to our topic. About 300,000 years after the Big Bang, the universe continues to expand, so the temperatures and the density drops to a point where the atomic nuclei, the protons and neutrons and other subatomic particles, and the electrons were able to combine to form atoms. This is now known as the Epoch of Recombination, and it is at this moment 
In time, their photons were finally able to escape the fog of the early universe and travel freely, and they are speeding everywhere at the speed of light, of course. The Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, CMB, is the record of these photons at the moment of their escape. So, at this time, all these photons were radiating at 3000 degrees Kelvin. But as you can imagine, over the last 14 billion years, they have cooled down and redshifted to 2.752 degrees Kelvin. Redshifted, Nadeshda? What's that? Not now, Brendan. Next week, I will explain Doppler and redshift. So, now all these photons from the moment of recombination are still out there, and we can detect them. It is a beautiful example of how Big Bang Theory made a prediction, and the CMB observations fit perfectly into the temperature curves predicted by that theory. Now, as a postscript, Brendan, there have been many observations of the CMB following the initial discovery by Penzias and Wilson, some using a huge range of instruments from satellites to balloons and even ground-based instruments in Antarctica. Two famous investigations of the CMB are the GOBI and WMAP satellites, if people want to look them up. C-O-P-E and W-M-A-P. Next week, it's Doppler and the Redshift. Thank you, Brendan. Paka! Paka, Nadeshda. Dusvidanya. Thank you. Hello, Brad. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very good, thank you. Well, today it gives me great pleasure to speak with Dr. Brad Tucker. He's an astrophysicist and cosmologist and currently a research fellow at the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the Mount Stromlo Observatory at the Australian National University. Now, Brad, when did you first develop an interest or passion in science and the great unknown? I think it's actually probably later than a lot of my friends and colleagues. As I say, growing up, I wanted to be a garbage truck, the actual truck, <laughs> not the driver. And then my mom told me I couldn't be that. And it wasn't really until university, actually, that I started to be interested in astrophysics. So I did my undergraduate degrees in the U.S. at the University of Notre Dame. And I actually did three. I did physics, but in addition to physics, I did philosophy and theology. Fantastic. And kind of the combination of studying the unknown really got me thinking and I said, hey, astrophysics sounds fun. And then I started doing research projects as an undergraduate and have been doing it ever since. Fantastic. Now tell us a little bit about your time at Berkeley. So I did a position in Berkeley. Um, so after my PhD, when I did my PhD at Mount Stromlo, I worked in Berkeley with Alex Filipenko and Adam Reese. So Adam Reese is based at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, but we did a project trying to figure out the rate of expansion of the universe now. So in cosmology, we can measure different epochs or different times of the universe. And one of the big things is currently, what is the actual speed of the universe now? And that tells us 
us a lot about how the universe has evolved since then. Uh, so we did a large project using the Hubble Space Telescope to do the most accurate measurement to date of that speed, what we call Hubble's constant. Yes. And it was it was quite exciting. We found that it was actually a little bit faster than expected, which is it's always good to get surprises that keeps you employed. But more importantly, it actually tells you something. And so it was a great experience to work with both of these fantastic supervisors. Fantastic. Now, we're going to take a few steps backwards, I think, for some of our listeners who are just beginning the journey into astrophysics. Can you explain what a supernova is and what a standard candle is and briefly the Chandrasekhar limit? One of the fundamental things and related to the projects I've been in is in order to figure out things across the universe, we have to know where they are. One of the most fundamental things you can do in astronomy and astrophysics is measuring distances because you do not know anything about the object. You can't understand the planetary system, the nature of the star or the galaxy if you don't know where in the universe it is because we don't actually tell how bright or how faint it is and therefore what the properties are. So one of the big tools that I use, and a lot of us use, are exploding stars, supernova. Yep. Uh, so they're actually quite common. About every second, 50 stars blow up in our universe. Uh, so they're actually they're quite a lot. They're very big. They're very bright. So I think one exploding star is equal to 100 million, billion, billion, billion lightning bolts, if you can imagine that brightness. Oh, look, we, we love big numbers, Brad. Exactly. We love big numbers. I love big explosions. It's a relationship made to be. <laughs> and some of these, some of these stars blow up at the same brightness. Yep. And this is an important thing. If we know how bright something is, we can actually get a distance to this. And this is an experiment that anyone can do at home. If you stare down a street and you could measure how bright that street bulb is right next to you, you can then look at the end of the street, measure how bright that street bulb looks. Yes. Now, that bulb is going to be fainter because light diminishes over distance. So you can then measure how bright it appears to be. You know how bright it should be by the one next to you, and therefore you can calculate a distance. The famous inverse square law. Exactly. And luckily, luckily, their speed of light is constant, and we can apply this inverse square law to get these distances. So we use supernova as these light bulbs, as these candles. So because they're so bright, because there's so many of them, we can use them as markers all across the universe. And we're putting a lot of effort into understanding their explosions, how bright they should be, and therefore measure them as distances all across the universe. Yep. Now, the one particular one we use, or we call type 1A supernova, thermonuclear supernova, and that is it's actually a white dwarf, so a star like our sun will be in 10 billion years, Yes. that when it gets near another star, it actually sucks material off another star, like a big vacuum. Okay. And in this process, it kind of pads it around itself. But because it kind of can't support this extra mass... When it reaches a certain point, and this is called the Shanar-Sekar mass, the Shanar-Sekar limit, which happens to be 1.4 times the mass of our sun, yep. it becomes unstable and explodes. Yep. And so the great thing about this process, because it explodes at the same mass, you release essentially the same energy, and then energy turns into brightness. So by this process, we can know how bright they should be, and therefore measure how bright they are and understand our universe. So it's quite an elegant solution to figuring out the big complex questions of what is our universe, what is it doing, how is it growing, and then eventually how will our universe end? Fantastic. Now tell us a little about your own research with Type 1A supernovae. So one of the things we've discovered in really recent times is that our standard candles aren't as standard. 
And that is the process that we just explained, the process of this white dwarf sucking material actually happens differently in almost every explosion, which means that at the very small level, the, the explosions, the brightnesses are a little bit different. Yep. And if they're just a little bit different, that will change our measurement of the distance just a little bit more, which changes our understanding of the universe just a little bit more. Yes. So one of the big things I've been using is the Kepler Space Telescope. So this is famous for finding all these planets around other stars. Yep. But we've been actually using it to find supernova the moment they blow up. And a cool thing about stars is that in the moment they explode, they actually release a shockwave of energy. So if you imagine a nuclear bomb going off, it's maybe not the prettiest picture, but it's the same concept. Yep. That in the early stages, you get that shockwave right as the bomb goes off, and then you get the, the nasty stuff behind it. Yes. Stars release the shockwave too. And the shockwave is directly proportionate to the energy in the explosion, which is therefore driving the brightness, causing the brightness. Yep. So if we can capture these shockwaves going through these stars... We can figure out exactly their brightness and therefore improve our measurements. Now, this only happens in a matter of minutes to hours. So you have to be really early in catching a supernova. And because space is so big and there's so many of them, most telescopes can't capture the very first moments of explosion. Yes. But Kepler, Kepler monitors the same patch of sky every 30 minutes. Which means that if a supernova goes off where Kepler's looking, we can detect it within 30 minutes. We can see within a few minutes the explosion happening. So we've been using Kepler to detect these shockwaves, and we've actually seen them. We've seen now the shockwaves of these exploding stars traveling through this star system, causing it to blow up and then go into space, which is, I think, just fantastic. That a, a fundamental process of the star collapsing and exploding can help us improve our understanding of what is in the universe, and that's one of the big things we've been doing. That's awesome. Now, do you get Kepler to send you an email every time it spots something you're looking for? So Kepler is... Uh, is great, but it has a limitation in that because it's so far away, it only downloads the data every three to six months. Yep. So we actually have to wait for it, the data to be downloaded. So what we actually do is we use telescopes on the ground, like at Sighting Spring, we use SkyMapper, or in Chile, we use the Cerro Tololo 4 meter, and we look in the same area that Kepler is. Now, we don't have to look for it as often. We just have to know in a few days that a supernova has gone off. Yes. We then study it ahead of time, that the properties of the supernova normally, and then we know there's a supernova in the Kepler data so that when that data is downloaded, we go and look at it. So we look at it from the ground and coordinate with Kepler using the limitations, but also the benefits of Kepler to do these things. Fabulous. Now, we'll move on to the accelerating universe. You've used, or a lot of researchers have used data from supernovae to calculate the accelerating expansion of the universe. Can you just cover how the supernova have allowed us to calculate that accelerating expansion of the universe? This is a great fundamental thing that we've been able to use these exploding stars. So as we said, if we know how bright they should be and how bright they appear to be, we can get a distance to them. Yep. Now we have another technique that we can actually measure how fast they are moving away from us. Doppler. And this is called Doppler effect, yeah. exactly, or redshift. And we do this all the time. You hear an airplane or you hear a car, and when you look, it's actually in a different position. Yes. And that is because it takes time for sound to travel to us. It also takes time for light to travel to us. 
So by the time that light has reached us, that object has already moved, it's shifted, and therefore the light has a speed. And if you have a speed and you have a distance, basic physics tells us you can get an acceleration. So just as with the car, you can know how fast you're going right now, or if you measure over a certain distance, you can measure how fast you got to that speed, your acceleration. Yep. So by measuring the speeds these supernova are traveling, and by measuring the exact distances they appear, by doing this over the course of our universe, we can measure how fast or how slow our universe is growing, and we figured out that the universe is actually speeding up. The speeds of the universe are increasing over time. Fantastic. That's a beautiful bit of science. Now, recently, there's been some questions raised about this research, despite the fact that there's several lines of research which support the accelerating expansion model. What's going on here, Brad? How are cosmologists reacting to this new research? And what do you think is going to happen next? So we're not reacting favorably, and there's a number of reasons. Now, firstly, I always like to say it's good when other people check your results. This is a fundamental thing of science is reproducibility. Yep. It's one thing for me to say I found something, but it's good to have someone else look at either the same data, different data, or a different technique to confirm or not confirm what yep. I see. Yep. You know, This is a pillar of science. Now, the accelerating universe, as you said, is based on not just different supernova or different groups finding supernova but entirely different techniques, not even related to supernova now, that gives us the same answer. This is why we really believe in this value. Yep. Now, there's two things to this. There is, is the universe accelerating in its speed? And unequivocally, the answer is yes, that this is not going away. And what is causing this growth? What is causing this acceleration? And we call this dark energy. Yep. Now, dark energy is a fancy way of saying we don't know. <laughs> uh, it is unrelated to dark matter. We are just not creative. So what is energy that's kind of dark and what is matter that's kind of dark, but they're not related. So it's not like you can say E equals MC squared. They are fundamentally different things. Now, we attribute dark energy to this thing causing the growth of our universe because there's nothing else that we know of in our universe that should cause the universe as a whole to grow faster and faster and faster okay. we have some ideas but exactly how fast the universe is growing will tell us what dark energy is so if you know essentially the source of the force or source of the energy you can then figure out what its exertion or its pressure or its force is so by going the reverse way, by measuring what the force is, we can figure out the cause of the force. Yes. That makes sense. Now, the recent paper that came out in the past couple of weeks here saying that, well, the universe isn't actually accelerating or dark energy doesn't exist, has multiple flaws. Firstly, okay. one of the big discrepancies is what we call the strength of evidence, or some people might have heard of this called sigma, three sigma, five sigma. Yep. And what that is, is how confident above this being purely random is this result. Yes. Now, in astronomy, in order for something to be evidence, we need a three sigma result. So three standard deviations or 99.997% not random chance that yes. it's true. In particle physics, like things at the Large Hadron Collider, they need five sigma or 99.9999995% okay, chance. Yep. So, yep. so different levels of strength. Now, there's good reasons for this. In particle physics, when the Large Hadron Collider is producing lots of particles, they are producing billions upon billions of these things, so you're likely to get more things that go wrong. So you need more of them to be convinced that you didn't do something wrong. In astrophysics, we use less of them, so we need less of them to be confirming that one of them isn't gone wrong. So it's a numbers game. 
Yep. And it's kind of like comparing apples to hamburgers. <laughs> you know, yeah, they're kind of the same, but they actually are different. They're both delicious in their own ways, but you have them in different scenarios. Yes. And what one of the things this paper has made is it said, well, it's actually not five sigma. It's not the particle physics value. It's only three sigma, so it's not as strong as people made out to be. Okay. And that's a misunderstanding in how we do science. That is just wrong. Now, the other thing that they looked at is they these are actually particle physicists, so people who use things like at the Large Hadron Collider, yes. using our data analysis, which is, good. again, good. Independent checks are always great. But they actually ignored some of the fundamental issues that we have to take into account because we know, as we talked about earlier, the explosions of these supernova are slightly different. Yeah, exactly. On the very, on the very small scale. Yep. And this has a small effect when we measure this. And we know this. We openly admit it. We try and calculate this. But what it does is it affects how well we can understand what dark energy is, not that the universe is accelerating. So it's kind of, again, mixing two different cases. There's one that is a universe really growing very fast, being caused by something. And that answer is yes. And then what is it that is causing? And our problems or our lack of understanding of exactly how these stars blow up limits us in figuring out what is causing the acceleration, not is the universe accelerating. And this is something this paper and the news stories have mixed up, which is, is, is unfortunate because we don't understand what dark energy is. There's lots of people trying to figure it out. Yep. But we do know the universe is accelerating and it's not going away at any time. And as we said, there's multiple probes that have given this evidence. And lastly, not to dig in too much into the subject, but when we look at the properties of the universe, there's different properties of the universe. Just as we look at a star, we can measure its mass, we can measure its age, we can measure its lifespan. And there's different ways to measure those properties. There's different properties of our universe. How big it is, how old it is, how much stuff is in it. How what is the shape? Exactly. And in cosmology, in the study of the universe, each technique tells us a little bit different piece of this puzzle. So when, when we go do our experiment to figure out how fast the universe is, we can use the other measurements to get a better picture. Yep. Now, in this analysis that they just did, they actually ignored all those other pieces of the puzzle. They said, we're going to ignore every other piece of information of our universe and just evaluate from exploding stars alone, what can we say about our universe? Yep. And they still found that our model of the universe, so that is what we call flat, that is over the course of the history of the universe, it's relatively the same shape, uh, and accelerating, it has dark energy and dark matter. And they found this at the three sigma, this confidence level. Yep. But when we actually do our analysis, we build in the other information to give us a better result. Yes. So they actually, in some ways, gave a better result from supernova alone of our model of the universe than what we actually do. So in the way they did it, they actually got a stronger result than what we get, even though that's not what they said. And again, it's this disconnect of what we actually do. So that's kind of the source of this whole problem is it boils down to a communication argument. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for clarifying that. Perhaps we should call standard candles almost standard candles. That's right. We like to call them standardizable candles, that we can make them standard, but they're not. They are not intrinsically exactly standard. They are made to be standard. And that's a fundamental thing that we need to get across. And this is why we put effort into figuring these things out. And again, this is why we do multiple checks to make sure someone's not doing something silly. 
Thank you so much for clarifying that. That will be fantastic to let people know exactly what's going on. Now, you're a research fellow and outreach manager at Mount Stromlo. Tell us a little bit about the instruments and technologies you use there in your research. So as I talked about, I use a lot of the Kepler Space Telescope to find supernova, but our recent measurements of figuring out how fast the universe is growing right now, we had a big project using the Hubble Space Telescope. But with every study, you need multiple telescopes to tell you again at different measurements. So we often use the Keck telescopes in Hawaii. So we're a partner in the Keck telescopes. These are two 10-meter telescopes based in Hawaii. So they're the biggest telescopes on the world. Mount Stromlo, one of the big things that we are doing is actually building satellites. So we're actually the biggest place now in Australia to manufacture space satellites. Now we do this for all different purposes, but we're looking at building very small space telescopes to be launched, built here in Australia. Now one of the things I'm interested in is actually looking at the ultraviolet colors of light. So these are colors we can't see with our eyes, but when you look at the ultraviolet colors, they tell us very energetic, very hot things in the universe. Yes. Now we can't do this from the ground because luckily the ozone layer is blocking most of the ultraviolet light so we don't get sunburn. But we are actually looking at building telescopes built here and flying them on balloons. Now, this sounds very science fiction-y, but if you fly them on a big enough balloon high enough, you can actually get above the ozone layer. So not quite into space, but above enough of the atmosphere so you can look at the ultraviolet colors of light. And we're trying to find the moment stars blow up, so these shock waves. We actually think we can measure atmospheres of other planets. So the same reason our sky is blue, we hope to find that same mechanism in other planets around other stars and measure is there hydrogen, oxygen, are there byproducts of life. But because they're on a balloon, we can then have that balloon land back on Earth and then relaunch it instead of it being lost in space. So we're actually trying to get very creative with the technology here and again, built at Mount Stromlo in order to do these big questions that we're trying to ask. Fantastic. Now... Scientists no longer lock themselves in a lab. They're very active and communicating science and getting on social media. I found out I'm following at least three of your PhD students at the moment on on Twitter. What does a typical week look for you in terms of the way you mix your research and your outreach responsibilities? So I think one of the big things we always like to get across is the actual observations of the telescope are probably the smallest part of an astronomer's job. Uh, That might seem surprising, but a few nights at a big telescope, it takes months to analyze, look at, study, and then interpret that data. So lots of astronomers do spend time on telescope, but that is the smallest part. I do have time next week that we're doing. A lot of it, unfortunately, is writing. (laughs) One of the things, if you ever want to be an astronomer or a scientist, is you need to know how to write and communicate well. Just as we're talking about it now, to communicate our results, our jobs. And ultimately, part of it is talking back to our ultimate boss, and that is the taxpayer. Yep, and applying for grants. Yep. So I think a fundamental thing is, yeah, justifying to all these people, so talking to the general public, the taxpayers, talking to other students, and talking to other scientists to tell us what the discoveries are to report it, because we're trying to understand things in the universe and trying to understand things in science. There's no good reason for us to know all these cool things and not tell people it. 
right? Yep. If we don't tell people it, then why are we trying to understand it? This is what we're trying to do is improve our knowledge, improve our lives, and tell people this. And one of the great things about astronomy is lots of people are interested by it. Yes. And even though we're studying very complex things that people can't touch, you can't interact with, you can't go touch a star, you can't create the universe, people are interested by it. So if we can say what cool things we're doing in astronomy and astrophysics and cosmology and inspire people to learn more about other fields of science, physics, math, biology, chemistry, environmental studies, social sciences, and use this kind of as a gateway drug almost, the gateway science drug to showing the processes and the methodologies, then that's a good thing. The more people appreciate what we do, take an interest. We don't need everyone to be scientists. We need other people to know how science plays in their lives because science is used every day in our lives. I'd like to give the example that when people are going to work or they're driving somewhere, they do the scientific method. You'll look up traffic reports, either you listen on the radio, you look at a map, you read the news, you figure out where the problems are and how to avoid them, and then you inform your decision and move on that decision to go on your new informed path. That's science. That's a scientific method. So it's not this abstract thing. We use it all the times in our lives, and it is part of us. So the more we appreciate it, the more we like it, I think that's cool. Fantastic, Brad. This is your opportunity to give us your rant or your rave on the nature of science, on funding, on the victories that we have, on the impediments that we have for success. So we are an interesting time in science and not necessarily astronomy, but that we live in the age where we have the most information possible to us at any time. Yes. At pretty much any point in any time you are, you can ask a question and try and explore that answer. Yep. And yet we're seemingly getting a bigger disconnect between the information provided and the understanding of that information, how we're gathering it, the sources. And we see these across multiple science disciplines, you know, battles with climate change, battles with vaccinations. Yep. Luckily in astronomy, we don't have these issues, really. Most people will believe if we say there's a black hole, but that's not always the case. You know, there's always conspiracies about Nibiru or some planet going to destroy the Earth or NASA's covering something up. And again, it's this disconnect. You know, we astronomy had our we had our issues in the 1600s with Galileo and the models of the universe. It was the same exact battle. You are upending people's beliefs, and so we need to have an appreciation of really what we're doing. And you know, I think sometimes people think that scientists, you know, there's always a conspiracy theory, as we just said. Yep. And I don't think people realize that there is no reason a scientist should hide anything because we get funding, we get our next job by talking about the discoveries, not hiding them. If I discover aliens, you can guarantee I will tell everyone possible that I discovered aliens because I will get as much grant funding as I can imagine. I'm not going to hide that information. And so this is across all disciplines. We do these things because we love it, not because of the money. And I just want people to understand that, you know, we do this because this is our passion, just as police officers do their job because that's what they're interested in or doctors, or engineers, or mechanics. They do this because that's what they love and that's what their passion is. They're not trying to hide anything. They're not doing anything untoward. And that's the same thing in science. And we need to increase this. And part of this is on the scientists' onus. This is just what we talked about, getting more to the public, talking about what we're doing, showing them we're people, showing them the process. But then also, you know, meeting halfway between the public and what we're doing and, and encouraging people to double check information. If you see a news story, maybe read another one to gather as best information 
information and being informed as possible because we have as much information as we possibly want in this day and age. Fantastic, Brad. Just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true. Exactly. I think one of the things that we fail to realize is that everything has a bias, no matter what. It's written by a person, and so someone with all of their experience and all their information had to write it in the way that they needed to write it. So bias isn't a bad thing. It's a part of who we are. So by reading multiple sources and gathering multiple things, you get the complete picture. Fantastic. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Anytime. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, and you know, hopefully we'll chat in the future. Okay. Thank you very much, Brad. That was Dr. Brad Tucker, Mount Stromlo Research Fellow, Cosmologist and Type 1A Supernovae Researcher. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Well, Ian, tell us what's up, Doc. What's up in the sky this week? Well, what's up in the sky this week? We still have a lovely display from Venus, Saturn and Antares and far off in the sky, the dying ember that is Mars. Venus and Antares are hurtling towards the horizon and becoming less and less obvious. Venus and Antares uh, pair up very nicely, but they become lower and lower highlight as the week goes on. They're still quite visible into vertical twilight, that is an hour after the sun sets, yes. but they're getting quite low by the time astronomical twilight comes along. Few uh, wanting to watch Saturn telescopically, it's still possible to do that, but because Saturn's quite low, your image is going to be very, very degraded, and you will have a very narrow window before Saturn is too low to get any decent images. And by the end of the week, you're really beginning to push it. In the meantime, Venus is getting higher and higher, and it's now getting into the territory where it's getting quite dark, and you're going to be seeing it passing through some very interesting territory. Indeed, by the, the beginning of the week, it's now close to the the Lagoon Nebula. Let's try that as an English sentence. By the beginning of the week, it's very close to the Lagoon Nebula. Indeed, it starts off the week within binocular distance of the Lagoon Nebula. And by the 11th and 12th of November, it's at its closest to the Lagoon Nebula. It doesn't really come within decent telescope distance of the Lagoon Nebula. If you've got a wide-field telescope, it's sort of close-ish on the 12th. It's never really close enough to fit into a wide-field eyepiece unless you've got a very, very wide-field eyepiece. But even then, the brightness of Venus is going to make it a really difficult imaging target. It'll completely wash out the Lagoon Nebula. But as a binocular object, it's going to look really interesting to see the Lagoon Nebula paired with the brightness of Venus. Also, on the 13th, it's going to come very close to very dim globular clusters, NGC 6544, that's magnitude 7.5. And NGC 6553, that's magnitude 8.3, that's quite dim. Now, that will be within telescope with Venus out of the field. You've got no chance whatsoever. Very Um, good, Ian. Now, for those that are beginning, what is a nebula? A nebula, you have two types of a nebula. You have emission and absorption nebula. Emission nebula are usually clouds of gas 
which are being lit up by bright stars which are causing the gas to ionise and to glow. So, for example, Lagoon Nebula is a cluster of glowing gas being lit up by bright stars that are causing it to glow. Yep. With globular clusters, these are spherical aggregations of stars that have formed globular masses under their own gravitational pull. Very good. Thank you. So going on, Venus is, keeps on moving through the constellation of Sagittarius, starts the week in Sagittarius, I should have mentioned that. It continues on moving through Sagittarius, and it ends the week close to the star uh, Caus Borealis. Yep. That's the star that forms the lid of the teapot of Sagittarius. Sagittarius is the, classically, is the archer, the centaur, that is the archer. But Australians see a, rather to say, teapot, Yep. And the uh, Caus Borealis is the bright star that forms the lid of the teapot. So on the 17th, Venus will be almost on top of the, the star that forms the lid of the teapot. And uh, as the week goes by, you'll be able to see it come closer and closer. Yep. So if you have a telescope, you may notice that Venus is looking almost like, uh, like a, a half moon shape in a telescope. In the morning sky, you should be able to see Jupiter if you're up before dawn. Jupiter is probably the brightest object on the eastern in the eastern dawn sky. Okay. Not far from the white star Speaker, it's brighter than Speaker. Not too much to, to, to look at this morning, this week, but in the coming weeks it will get higher into darker skies and start becoming worthwhile to look at telescopically. Very good. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us this week? I'm going to come back to the concept of supermoons again because I know you can't avoid it because every second Facebook or news post or Twitter feed is about the supermoon that's going to occur on the 14th. Just can't avoid it. Now, I've already talked about supermoons in in previous tangents, but I'd like to revisit this again, not really as a tangent, but uh, to just emphasise the sorts of things you're going to be able to see or not see on the 14th when the full moon rises. Now, I'll remind people that the moon has a, an elliptical path around the Earth. So uh, sometimes the moon is closer to the Earth, perigee, and sometimes it's further from the Earth. Apogee. Occasionally, the time at which uh, the moon is at uh, perigee coincides with the full moon. Up until about 10 years ago, no one particularly cared that full moons uh, occurred at perigee, except for a few astronomers, which called them perigee syzygies. Yes. And outside of astronomical circles got passed over lightly. Then an astrologer just started calling them supermoons and began to associate them with earthquakes. Uh, there was a brief <laughs> flurry of interest until a few people pointed out that there was no association with earthquakes whatsoever. I've already pointed this out that someone at NASA decided that it would be a good way to get people in, interested in uh, astronomy and started using the supermoon. But anyway, so now um, every time that there's a perigee full moon, they trot out the supermoon thing again. But this one is interesting because it's a very uh, close perigee moon. And you may have been uh, seeing that this is going to be the closest perigee moon for 70 years. And there won't be another one until 25th November 2034. Well, the big question is, Ian, with ordinary human eyesight, can you tell the difference? The answer is briefly no. <laughs> to see a difference between two objects, they have to be different in angular diameter by one arc minute. Yep. Uh, that's roughly the diameter of a human hair. 
So I'll remind listeners that between each each lunation, as you're approaching a, a perigee full moon and, and are going away from a perigee full moon, the difference isn't very much. Now, I have a friend who has a very good memory and has excellent vision. He was able to tell the difference between successive full moons and is able to tell the difference between a perigee full moon and any other full moon. I can't. In order to do this, you have to be able to look at the full moon at an equivalent time and an equivalent height above the horizon. It also is helpful to have something that you compare the moons against. Now, what often happens is that when they told them, oh, they said there's a there's a super moon and people go and watch the moon rise and they'll see the full moon illusion, which is uh, when the moon's very close to the rise and it looks big because of the full moon illusion, which I won't go into at the moment. The next one will be in uh, June 8, by the way, in June 8, 2017. The other way, as I mentioned in a previous tangent, is to photograph it. So set yourself up with a telescope or a telephoto lens where you set the scale so that your photograph this month and it will be an, ex- an excellent night for astrophotography. So photograph of the moon at a particular time, at a particular height above the horizon, and at a particular scale, and make sure you note down the scale that you've used to photograph the moon. And then on June the 8th next year, do the same thing again. And you'll be able to see very obviously the difference between the moons in your photograph. And for those that are just beginning, we'd encourage them to put their camera hopefully a DSLR, and put it on a tripod and start experiment. Try different exposures, different ISO settings, and find out what works best for your setup. But the tangent I was going to do is what is the true supermoon? Yep. And we have a lot of choices. Are we going to go by size? Yeah. If we're going to go by size, Ganymede is the obvious supermoon. It's it's bigger than Mercury. It's bigger than Pluto. It's, it's three-quarters the size of Mars. It's rock, ice. It's differentiated. It's much bigger than the moon, and it helps Galileo create a theory of the solar system. Yep. So in, in that way, it's the discovery of Ganymede and uh, Ganymede, with Ganymede's size, it's a, a true supermoon compared to our puny little uh, fifth biggest moon. Or do you want excitement? Do you want flair? Do you want giant skies of exploding sulphur? Then what about Io? Io, again, is big. It's got active volcanoes. It's constantly resurfacing itself, changing its surface all the time and vividly coloured, generating a a material for a a ring around uh, Jupiter. So if you're thinking about what's a true supermoon, maybe it's Io. In terms of being spectacular, Io might be a supermoon. And for people who have ham radios, they can very easily adapt their setup and listen to Io talking to Jupiter. They can indeed. They can indeed. And there is a project called Project Juno, which is a kit that you can order online and set it up in your backyard and listen to Jupiter and Io talking to each other. Thank you, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Thank you very much, Brendan, and may you have clear skies and may your supermoons be super. (laughs) Thank you very much, Ian. See you next week. See you next week. Cheers. Bye. 
This week's news report is all about the SKA, compiled from material from ICRA and Curtin University news releases. First of all, some background. What is the SKA? The Square Kilometre Array. The SKA will be an ultra-sensitive radio telescope with a collecting area of up to a million square metres, purpose-built to further the understanding of the most important phenomena in our universe. The International SKA Project is constructing the world's largest radio telescope, around 50 times more sensitive than present instruments, due to be finished around 2025, with Phase 1 science commencing in 2020. Precursor instruments in Australia and South Africa are already producing amazing science. Over the next few years, the SKA project will transition from a formative concept to a fully operational instrument, the SKA-1, approximately 10% of a proposed full SKA-2 instrument. The SKA-1 observatory will comprise two components. SKA-1 mid will be in the Karoo region of South Africa, with 200 dishes incorporating the Meerkat SKA precursor and equipped with single pixel feeds and with a low frequency range from 350 MHz to 14 GHz. SKA Low, a sparse aperture, low frequency array with 130,000 dipole antennas, we call them spiders, covering 50 to 350 MHz, is being built at the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory, the MRO site in Western Australia, home of the Murchison Wide Field Array, the MWA, and ASCAP precursor telescopes. The SKA Low at the MRO is being designed by a consortium of universities and research groups from Australia, the UK, the Netherlands and Italy. This includes Cambridge University, Oxford University and the National Radio Astronomy Institutes of Italy and the Netherlands. Coming later, SKA-2 will be a much larger array of coherently collected antennas spread over a continental scale. As it evolves, the SKA will give astronomers insight into the formation and evolution of the first stars and galaxies after the Big Bang, the role of cosmic magnetism, the nature of gravity, and possibly even life beyond Earth. More info and the current status of the SKA is at skatelescope.org. See you next week. Radio Wave.